0: He just forgot to dress and wore a bathrobe to church. It's kind of a, right that or a shepherd, but the beard—the beard is sort of costumish in its own way. Only that's real. We all know that, but he got it right. So it's the same. It's the same verse. It's a, no surprise to you. So we have it in Luke chapter two, the whole the joy verse. There's more than one, but I mean this is. I guess maybe this is the main one. The angel said to them, verse ten. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. There's your key word. Joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's our verse. It wouldn't have to be the only one. My guess is you've noticed, though, it's easy enough to notice the general theme of um, cheer, you know, or merriment that is supposed to be. It's supposed to characterize the whole season. Everybody knows this, don't they? This is the whole, this is the language of the season. This is, this is the general vocab. A, a, We've got a strong joy vocabulary at this time. Everybody does. You just think of all the words, you know, Mary. That's how, that's, you wish people that. You don't really use that word other, in other contexts. I dare you to, actually. You should start using Mary. In other ways. But you don't, it, it lingers on just in Christmas. That's how you wish people that. Merry and happy and jolly and cheerful and joyous. There's a whole bunch of words that are Christmas-related words. So that the whole culture really around the world, everyone sort of got the memo long ago that the, that the season is supposed to be joy-related. They all kind of get that. And even the, even the sort of more, um, I don't know what we would call the more secular Christmas tunes, uh, the Christmas songs that are not in your hymnal, always emphasize this. Now they, they may not emphasize Christ a whole lot. There's not a whole lot of messianic talk in those songs, but there's definitely a lot of joy talk in those songs. That's why they say that it is the most, What? Wonderful time of the year. Isn't that that how Andy Williams says it? Right? It's the happiest season of all. That's how all the songs tell you. Be of good cheer. They're all telling you to have a holly jolly Christmas. I'm not going to do the whole repertoire. You want me to. You wish I would. But i got more important things to say. But you get the idea. You get the idea. Everyone knows these are not overtly biblical songs, but they're Christmas songs and everybody knows them. And you can't have these kind of songs without this definite conveyance of this universal idea of joy. That's what the season is about. And incidentally, this is also part of why one of the... Unfortunate phenomena, the social phenomena of the season every year, is a lot of people are really despondent. Isn't that true? You ever wondered why that is? Why, why do a lot of people during the holidays, there's in sort of increased depression? Part of the reason for that is the pressure of the knowledge that I'm supposed to be extra happy. I'm supposed to be extra joyous. And if the reality of my own life is that I'm just not, um, then that only compounds, maybe, uh, my sense of sorrow. Why am I not more happy? I'm supposed to be. Everyone's supposed to be. All the songs are telling me about it, but I'm just not. So so this is a universal thing, and it's good for us to always reiterate the question, I think. it's a little bit of a devil's advocate type question, but the question that says, well, if it's the hap- happiest season of all, why? Why? We should be, this is an occasion of joy. Okay, why? I mean, what makes it a season of joy? Of course, there are um, there, there are a lot of, uh, there's almost a set design That's the whole background of the Christmas, the general Christmas joy. It's it's like every set that they build for all the Hallmark movies. You know what I mean? I mean, it looks great when you watch all those, you know? It's like, uh, you know how they always decorate and it's got that perfect fire? Nobody ever adds wood to those things. They burn just to perfection. You can feel the warmth coming off of them. With those chestnuts that sort are of roasting on those, you know, and it's like it's the greenery is hung all around these perfect-looking houses, and they got Christmas trees. And the ornaments are perfectly spaced, and the presents like some they got expert wrapping jobs on those things. Everything's nice, you know. Probably a bearskin rug. I mean, it's just like it's all so nice, and they got cups in their hand, and they're all together. So that's that's the sort of. Um, I don't know, this sort of de-spiritualized notion of why it's so happy. We're all together in a warm room and there's a dining table with lots of good food. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, is there? Uh, But it's it's not bad, though, to sort of provoke and challenge just below the surface of that. Uh, I mean, like, you know, is this it? Because this is like, you know, th- this festive event, it's fun. But whatever that gathering looks like, that thing lasts a few hours and then I got the rest of the year. <laughs> you know, and I got, I got all my problems and I got all just, you know, living my life. So do I have something with a little more substance to it to, to anchor me here? Could I, can I have this kind of thing about joy? So it just points us, uh, it points us to the biblical basis of joy, And when Christians start to talk about joy, quite often we get around to this distinction here, to the joy and happiness discussion, or as it's often put as it is here, joy versus happiness. And I've read it for years, and so have you, and I've heard lots of sermons to this effect, to the, so that I don't, for a long time I sort of just assumed that this was a sure-fire biblical doctrine. That is that you have these two things. You have happiness and you have joy. That would be easy for me to just do that sermon because I could rip that off from a lot of sources. That's been done a lot. And the way it works is happiness is worldly and fleeting and, you know, is based on shallow things. It's kind of more emotionally oriented. But joy is profound and godly and permanent and eternal and you need to shun this one and take that one don't fall for this one get that one and that's how that works and by the way that that idea uh, bled over into the secular culture so that a lot of non-christians promote that idea too because um, so I read where, um, I read where a psychologist uh, wrote a thing called "Joy versus Happiness," and it says, um, "It says, quote, uh, this, the, there." I have two articles for you, actually. Um, this is the second one that you're looking at. What one? I just give you the the synopsis. Somebody wrote this is from Psychologies. It says, "Joy and happiness are wonderful feelings to experience, but they are very different." Joy. This is a this is a secular psychologist. Joy is more consistent and is cultivated internally. It comes when you make peace with who you are, why you are, and how you are. Whereas happiness tends to be externally triggered and is based on other people, things, places, thoughts, and events. Lifestyle mentor Rachel Fernley shows you how to finally find joy. And although I don't show you this up here, I'll I'll give you the summary. Do you know what her three points are? How to finally find joy? Notice. They, this this writer makes the distinction on purely I mean I mean on, on grounds other than what preachers say but still it's, it's, you know what the three points of that are she fo- she shows you how to finally find joy her points are number one quiet your mind with meditation number two cut down on social media number three keep a journal and practice gratitude That's a sermon I could preach. I wonder what you'd think if I came at you with that. I mean, look, there's a lot of truth, practical truth in those. Should you cut down on social media? Yeah, let's go ahead and say yes. Now, some of you old-timers are like, hey, wait a minute, I'm not on there very much. Okay, fair enough. But most of the population could afford to take a little more of a break. Okay, so so there's nothing wrong with that point. How about quiet your mind with meditation? Is meditation wrong? Eh, Not necessarily, depends on kind of... What your mind is focused on and what you think you're getting out of it. and That's not necessarily bad. Keeping a journal? Sure. Practicing gratitude? I'm all for it. Um, But it seems like uh, that's a little thin to me. I will find true joy if I just do those three things. Then the one I show you here, this is from a a Huffington Post blog. Uh, A health and wellness enthusiast wrote, wrote this one. The important difference between joy and happiness, and the basic idea—I read the whole thing here. Of course, the whole—there's no reference to scripture here. There's no reference to Christian language whatsoever. But it's—it's it's still this idea that somehow came across that you've got these two things. Well, what about this? That the thing about this is—it's just not quite as simple as that. It's just not quite as simple. Um, You know, I don't know where I first read it. It may have been, some people trace this, um, you know, when I was really young, I read through those Oswald Chambers devotionals. You know those. Very famous. And, And he sort of writes, one of his entries, or more than one, maybe, writes to that effect, too. But, The more serious Bible study I would do, the more I would sort of be looking for this, and I just couldn't necessarily find it exactly like that. I just couldn't necessarily see it that way. The fact is, the the language of the Bible includes a lot of related words that are sort of happiness words, like, you know, happiness itself, and happy, joy, blessed are, blessed, satisfaction, uh, contentment, gladness. I mean, all these words are sort of cousins, and the Bible uses all this language. And the thing is, search as I might I don't necessarily find these terms pitted against each other you see what I mean I just don't find places where it says there's this one versus that one and one is good and one is not good in fact they're quite often used interchangeably so that for example in uh, going back to the hebrew scriptures in, in the book of esther it talks about the jews for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honor. Or in Jeremiah, the prophet says, Jeremiah 31, I will turn their mourning into joy and bring happiness out of grief. Or Proverbs, give your father and mother joy. May she who gave you birth be happy. You see, it just keeps that Hebrew parallelism kind of, you know, likes to pick the one word and pick the other word, but typically it's little, they're, they're in some way or another just synonymous And from a biblical point of view, it's not about the words that we should focus on. It's about the truths of these things. Happy is not a bad word for the inspired writers. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And Paul says to the Christians, Romans 14, Happy is he that condemns not himself in the thing that he allows. They didn't have a problem using the word happy as if it's shallow and bad and flimsy and you shouldn't do that. So wait a minute. So is there a consistent teaching about joy in the Bible? Why, of course there is. But it's just that the teaching isn't reduced to the simple dichotomy of happiness, joy. Bad, good. That's just not how it's laid out. You know, people are the same pretty much always and everywhere. I reiterate that all the time. And one of the things that's universal about people, wherever you find them and whenever you find them, is they are all seeking happiness. Aren't they? They all want and are going after happiness. And you want people to have the freedom to pursue their happiness. That would probably sound good. As a, uh, in a political document, somewhere or another, the pursuit of their happiness, if people have the ability to do that, whatever that might mean, people all want to do that. People seek their happiness, and they struggle to find it and maintain it. There's an elusive element to people's happiness. And today, of course, we see that just about as much as ever, maybe more than ever, that people, uh, for some people, it's a full-time occupation, from the time they rise the time they go to bed. the full-time occupation for them to chase after and try to find and get happiness. And there's something that philosophers long ago called the, the hedonic paradox or whatever, the pleasure paradox. It's, it's, it's a sort of a paradoxical thing about happiness where for a lot of people, the harder they're trying to get it, the less they can get any of it. You know what I mean? I mean, the more effort they put into it, the more they are zealous to track down and get happiness. I just want to be happy. And I will stop at nothing to get it. I will chase happiness to the gates of hell, to the end of the earth. It will not deny me. And a person like that, you think they're happy? The odd thing is, I'm putting in all the work. Why can't I get it? That's the paradox of it. Chances are, And this this certainly is a biblical notion. That to the degree that that happiness isn't your primary end-all, be-all goal. But higher, nobler, better things are your goal. Guess what tends to come along? Happiness. Seek first your happiness. And everything else is going to be just great. You'll probably get it. No, no, no. We know better. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And let God get you happy. Don't worry about that. Don't, don't, don't make happiness a sort of. Uh, don't be myopic and don't, don't have their laser sights on it so that it's almost like a neurosis for you. And for a lot of people, they're in absolute, abject misery. Cycle, most of their time is spent just feeling rotten and lousy, even as every day they're doing everything to get happy. And you can change everything up, which is what a lot of people do. They wake up and take their internal temperature. Do I feel happy today? Oh my gosh, I'm not happy enough. I better start making changes. I got to change my relationships. You're out, you're in. I got to change my jobs. I'm bored. New job, you know? I got to switch my majors i got to change everything. This house, it's this house. I'm tired of this house. i got to move. I need a new car. A new car will do it for me. Change everything. Change it constantly. And so happy that makes them, right? Wrong. It does not make them happy. Meanwhile, there are people living in circumstances and, uh, that you might think, well, how can they be happy? They drive a lousy car. And they don't even have very nice clothes, necessarily. They don't even have huge friends. They're not even that popular. How are they so happy? How can that be? I mean, consider the story. Consider this whole account. I mean, how are you supposed to be happy with the suspicious pregnancy, people looking at you weird, and you got no money, you're kind of far away from, you're on the road, you're... You, you you don't even have a nice warm place to you got you're out there with the, I mean, that those aren't circumstances that would promote happiness. I wouldn't think. Yet this is the season of joy, and that's sort of, you know, the, there's a there's the element there's the key element now I haven't mentioned it but that's it's it's the element of the birth. Advent is a coming. That's what it means. It's an arrival, and it's a coming and arrival not in a bizarre. Um, outer space way. <laughs> the Messiah didn't beam down or arrive in the Messiah spaceship. He came the good old-fashioned way. This advent is by, by way of baby. I say good old-fashioned and natural, though the, the conception is supernatural. But all the rest of it unfolds naturally. It wasn't like super Holy Ghost amniotic fluid that he's swimming in. You know, I mean, like everything else is natural and normal. I, I Dare I say, it wasn't like a miraculous pain-free birth. Like she just woke up from a lovely nap and there was a baby in her arms. Probably it all just went down real natural-like once the conception happened. But it's a baby. And this, this sort of, even the secular people understand that this gives Christmas a kind of universal appeal because it taps into something else that's very common. How common and universal is it that that birth and that new births and babies are an occasion of joy isn't that true in all the cultures of the world isn't that always been the case just as death is a common tragedy and leads to mourning every time it happens and it happens to every person as a part of life just as that is a common tragedy and mourning is universal for the passing of people so the common gift or blessing of welcoming the new people Welcoming our replacements when they come into the world. Both of those. Well, if I let me make a side note here, by the way, because you might be thinking about it already. As a side note, one sign I think of a possible spiritual sickness in a culture is is uh, the number of people who may no longer see birth or babies in this universal light anymore that they don't they no longer perceive it with as, as a gift and a blessing and joyous it's really I, I mean should it surprise us that our society might be uh, deeply unhappy you know despite so much comfort and material wealth which we enjoy all the prosperity we have should it surprise us if there still maintains this level of, of unhappiness that the suicide rate doesn't seem to move much, and and that there's a whole lot of people very unhappy, given what I think is a warped perspective on life itself, as evidenced by this. We we have brought a kind of grim death into the place of universal joy, right? The womb, and when when you know when you when you when you take the grave and you. Put it into the plate. You know what I mean. When when the reaper is there, at the, at the at the fest at the festive place of birth, um, yeah. There's something really messed up about that. And and it so it even there's even an effect of that idea. In when we, we come together and we celebrate life and this particular life, and it, and it and it's all surrounding a birth. It's all surrounding a baby coming into the world. And in, in a, in a in microcosm of that, all around, every day, people gather and sing their own little version of joy to the world because babies come into the world. And everybody's happy. Or at least they're supposed to be. Well, that's a mini-sermon that I will conclude. But joy is a, is a is certainly a kind of happiness. So it's not that happiness is bad. It's not that the circumstantial happiness you have about good food, good friends, good fellowship, good times. Those things aren't evil. There's nothing wrong with those things. But they will ultimately let you down if you have if you have cashed all your chips in on them. You know? If you're good friends and your good food and your good times, if that's basically all you got in this life. Then you got to say, like the man in the story, eat, drink, and be what? Merry. But that ain't the end, is it, comma? For tomorrow we die. I mean, it's like I might as well, might as well, better enjoy, better enjoy this and that and this and other, these temporal things, because that's all there is to life. And when I'm not, when I'm not appreciating some good food, and when I'm not listening to some fine music. I'm just thinking about how meaningless the rest of this whole charade is. You see? So this, this business of joy, it's sort of, there is a happiness, there are levels, there are ha- there's a happiness you enjoy with little things, and they're gifts, so you can enjoy them. And there's a deeper, there's something that roots, there's something that has real substance. Right? Like where the well goes down, it's not just a shallow pool. And it's rooted in something beyond sort of our trivial enjoyments, and it gives your life a basis for meaning and purpose. You know, when you were a kid, and you thought that the that the, that the presents everybody bought you, I mean, you know, right? It's like, as the song says, you know, the kid kids find it hard to sleep tonight. There, there's a there's a, when you're a kid, you know, your world, you, you frame things in a small, you know, the lens is small, and all the gifts are like, that's it, baby. If I can just get there. If I could just, can't wait, you know, just tomorrow. And even when you were young, don't lie. Don't lie. You tore through them all. And what happened shortly after that? A little bit of a come down, right? A little bit of a reality check, like, okay, well, there they are. My gifts. Cool. Cool. I really like my gifts. Well, it's, what, it's 10.30 and got the rest of the day and tomorrow and the next day and I guess I better get to enjoying my gifts. And, you know, a lot of times by, you know, like three days from now, those things, the luster kind of wore off, you know, the shine kind of wore off. Even as a child, there's a lesson, isn't there? Even as a child, you got the sense that it's it's fine to enjoy the moment. But you know, there's gotta be something something that's kind of has more substance to it that kind of carries me through the days from moment to moment. And especially because for every one of my high times and good days, you're gonna have some bad days too, aren't you? Every day ain't Christmas. You know, some days it's not, it's not a roaring fire with the hot chocolate in hand and everybody in, their, and everybody in their sweaters with the smiles on their faces. Some days aren't like that. So what do you got then? So this is, there's a, there's a, joy is connected to the true meaning and the purpose of your life. And By the way, again, a lot of non-Christians know this too. As I showed you before, a lot of non-Christians know this much too. People have discovered it sometimes in mysterious places. So the famous, uh, the famous uh, Jewish psychologist Victor Franklin, you probably know this story, discovered this truth, came famously to see this after his, all his training was totally turned upside down because all the traditional Freudian stuff he learned went right down the tubes when he saw, when he saw the worst of circumstances in the death camp where he survived. Right, he the worst that man could be brought to the point of ultimate deprivation, as he called it. And what what good will all of his, what good did all of his theories do in there? What you know, what good were they? And he decided they weren't worth much. He could trade all of the chic theories that he had learned for just one main thing, and that is who here has real meaning in their life. Who here? has something bigger than this place, bigger than this life, something that will outlast us. Who here has something to hold to? Those people, he said, survived. And other people, they ran out of everything. Because before they... He says, you know, a lot of people, before they came into those camps, they had money. They had education. They had good looks. They had great talent. They had friends. They had prestige. They had position. All that. But in here... We're all just skinny, shaved down, starving people. And we're all the same. And the ones who get up every day and the ones who lasted had something that, that, that outweighed all those things. They walked out of there like him. And that forever changed how he treated his patients. Forever. There are similar things that, that people say about the studies. that how Every Christmas and, and other times of year they do these studies where they compare people who have religious beliefs and religious lives versus people who don't. And they continually will talk about those who pray shown to have more stronger mental health. So here's another, here's another article for you. How about this? Um, from the Wall Street Journal opinion pages. This person says, this therapist writes, Don't believe in God? Lie to your children. Advice for atheists. Lie. Why would this person say this? This piece basically argues that the loss of spiritual life in a lot of younger people today, because of the culture's changes, the loss of eternal truths, and traditional religious teaching and practice that connects people to something beyond themselves. And the loss of all that, this person says, has for a lot of especially older kids and young adults, has resulted in greater depression, less principles that they live by, lower self-esteem, they're more subject to being manipulated, they're more open to destructive life decisions. She ties together all kinds of things from you know senseless violence and the shootings and all that to broken and dysfunctional family relationships and the fact that people can't form good relationships with the opposite sex anymore, that, they're, that, they're, that their dating and marriage habits are just really messed up. They just don't know how to go about it. And it's interesting that her prescription for all this is to go ahead and get back to teaching people a lot of traditional, and she implies Christian truths, Uh, even if you don't believe in them. Isn't that wild? What does that tell us? What do we take from something like this? Uh, Especially during our, our season of joy, on the Sunday of joy. Look, obviously, we do not do all of this for its practical, beneficial outcomes. This isn't just pretend for the sake of therapy. And I don't necessarily advocate People playing pretend. But this kind of thing is a reminder to us. And it's a pointer. And it's an indicator of something we already knew and cannot forget. Which is that this has to do with how we're made. This has to do with how we've been designed and crafted. We're made for joy. We're supposed to have it. It's supposed to be part of life. If we're devoid of it, we can't live right, we won't live right. If we don't have the deeper, truer form of happiness, this kind of joy, if we don't have that, are then the, then the shallower versions of happiness that, that otherwise are okay, they're going to leave us really hollow. C.S. Lewis, uh, of course, my spirit angel, uh, spirit animal, wrote a lot about this subject, a lot about this, he took on a popular Freudian idea in his own time. Uh, using a word, even he quoted him and used the word, the German word was It's This idea that people have this deep longing, a deep longing inside of them for something they can't quite attain. Can't put their finger on it, can't get it. And of course for the secularist, and for a lot of people. And for Freud, this is unfortunate. This is sad. It's a tragic flaw in us that we want something we just can't have. It's almost like a mistake in evolution to make us this way. Like it gave us a sense we can't... It's like it gave us an extra stomach, but no food can satisfy it. How cruel nature was to make us want something that doesn't exist. But what Lewis says is, no, no, no. He says... We certainly do have this thing. He has correctly identified something about human nature. We do have a deep sense of longing. There is something we want. But what Lewis says is it's not a tragic flaw in us. It is exactly as we're meant to be. And it's like a big giant signpost. Because the lo- what we're longing for, he says, is joy. And it what we should see is that We are made to find it, and it does exist. Joy is a real thing. Not I don't mean just the happiness, the shallow stuff, I mean joy is a real thing. A real and objective and transcendent and eternal thing. And so for him, as for all believers, once he discovered that, see everything else. Everything else can be better. The food tastes better. Right? Flower smells sweeter. Your friendships are better. I mean, you see, because all of it is now all of it is not you don't have the sort of background of sadness. You don't have the reaper standing over in the corner going, Yep, enjoy it while you got it. I'll be waiting. Because you can't hold on to this. Time's going to just keep on ticking. Your mind eventually and all of your parties and every roaring fire you stood in front of, it all comes to nothing. It all comes to nothing. Like how Joseph emphasized that word when he read that passage. Nothing! You know there's a belief in... There is a, there's a philosophy of nothingism. There really is. It's from the Latin. It's called nihilism. Some people hate it nihilism. Nothingism! It's funny because that that Wall Street Journal person that wrote that article actually used the word. Because she said, you know, a lot of people beneath the surface of their you know, all their technology and everything, the way they running beneath the surface of all that throughout their life is their true religion, she says, is something like nihilism. Because they got nothing beneath it all. And so, you know, it's interesting for just we look at this we look at the scene the manger scene—it doesn't look like the Hallmark movie set. There was, there's no beautiful roaring fire, with you know, with marble surround, with stockings hung carefully over them. And uh, no, it was, it's very earthy. It's, it's, it's just a cold, dirty spot. And I don't picture these. I don't picture the young parents in uh, the latest fashions you know wearing those LL bean sweaters on them i don't see them looking like that at all you know probably not a candy cane to be found in that in that whole scene but nevertheless the key word may, maybe the best way to characterize it is in the simplest line we sang earlier in the christmas hymn where you had the line they just repeated three words, didn't it? Joy, joy, joy. From God our heavenly Father, a blessed angel came, and unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same how ah, that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. Joy. Sure.